This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 41. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 41 you're listening to, and this is, of course, brought to you by our good friends over at Gearsluts.com. So, uh, great show today. Kim Rosen from Knack Mastering in Ringwood, New Jersey, will be with us shortly. And, of course, we're going to talk mastering and, you know, mastering uh, business and, you know, uh, workflow and all all of that stuff that we usually talk about. But from the mastering perspective, I know we've had uh, a little bit of mastering discussion here, of course, with uh, John Greenham uh, on recently. But uh, we're going to venture over to the other side of the country, uh, other side of the United States to have a good good chat with uh, Kim Rosen coming up. So I want to talk a little bit about with you about uh, habits and routines and um, and shaking those habits and routines up and those can be those can affect all different parts of our lives of course so for example let's uh, let's talk about uh, workflow let's say um, you know you found a particular way to mix or uh, a particular um, mastering routine that you get in or a tracking routine or over whatever it could be any part of your workflow I think it's always good to mix it up because if you've been doing the same thing for so long that you you haven't changed at all, I you know I'm not saying that your workflow is bad, but I think it's worthy to consider changing it up a bit. And I think many of you probably do that. There's so much information out there on the web to try different things, try different workflows, and I'm sure you do. But I also think that these habits and these routines can affect us financially from the perspective, and I'm going to kind of veer off here for a sec, um, into cell phones and insurance, for example. So I've been in the habit of just being with the same cell phone company for the last 10 years. I've been with T-Mobile for over, I think it's been over 10 years, which is, I don't know if that's normal or not, but I've been with them. The customer service has been great, but you know, I was paying a hundred bucks a month for a while. I was paying 80 bucks a month, got that bill down a bit. Then, then I got it down to about 50 bucks a month, you know, just through change of plans and stuff and navigating what, what I truly need. And finally came across a really good deal through the blog that I talk about, Mr. Money Mustache, mrmoneymustache.com. He turned me on to this thing, uh, this company called Republic Wireless, which I'm going to include a link in the WCA Recommends uh, part of the website. Uh, These guys, I can get uh, the same service through them, and the coverage looks good. I've, I've kind of checked out the coverage and feel confident about that. But it's going to be like literally 50% less than what I'm paying with T-Mobile. So just, you know, to do my due diligence, I called T-Mobile and said, here's my plan. You know I've been with you for over 10 years. Are you willing to make my bill this much? Can we come up with a plan? And they just wouldn't play ball. So I'm going to switch, and I look forward to it. I'll let you know how that works out. And But everybody that I've talked to that, uh, or everybody that I've encountered that has dealt with Republic Wireless feels good about it. And uh, I'm just going to go off that. The recommendations also online seem really high. So I'm going to save some money. So, you know, that could be money that could go into retirement. That could be money that can go back into uh, recording equipment if if I chose to do that or savings for an emergency fund. It could go into a number of things. And uh, I think that I think that's good. Also, I want to thank, and I and I 
I cannot uh, find the note, but one of the WCA listeners turned me on to the fact that, hey, I, I had mentioned, I said I'm paying a little too much for my mattboudreau.com website and really like the price that I pay for working class audio. Two different companies, Bluehost for working class audio and Squarespace for mattboudreau.com. And this listener clearly pointed out, he's, he was like, essentially he said, you can get off Squarespace and you can add a secondary website onto Bluehost for a little more money and save a ton. And he was right. So I can't remember, like I say, who that is. So if you're out there and you're the one, thank you. I'm, I'm switching and that's going to save me some money too. So yeah, changing things up can save some money. It can also, uh, in our workflow, of course, it can really kind of bring on new discoveries, new ways of doing things, many benefits, I think. So that's that's something uh, that I wanted to mention. And also, uh, I'm really going to change it up in a big big way. I'm actually going to switch over from Pro Tools to Studio One. And I got so enamored with the uh, the the videos for Studio One version 3, and then I looked into it, and I realized that my Mac doesn't go past 10.75. I live, of course, in the dark ages, something that uh, I don't know how, how many of you run on old machines, but I'm running on an old machine, and I'm not ready to switch yet. I will eventually, but I'm not ready to switch yet. Point is, is that I have to use version 2.6 of Studio One. Problem is, is Personas seems to have cut off not seems to, I know for a fact, they have cut off all access to those that version. So if you go to a dealer, if you go to an online dealer, if you go to a local dealer, you are going to be hard-pressed to find a version of 2.6 and be able to get that serial number, get that that license code. And I've been been through social media, I've I've had some back-channel discussions, I've had some direct discussions. And Personas just does not want to sell you version 2.6 anymore. So they want you to move to the new thing. I, I get that. They're trying to, you know, move everybody forward in that regard. But man, getting 2.6 has been hell. And I still don't have it as of, as of this recording. But uh, I think I'm close because I found, uh, I think I found a copy online from somebody that I can grab. Uh, but I do want to give a shout out to uh, Jim Pavitt at Pure Wave Audio in Arizona and Jim Chin from Audio Images in San Francisco for putting in the, the good attempt to help me uh, get what I needed. Oh, and I can't forget to mention Josh Estock over at Sweetwater, who has been very helpful in really digging through all of the possibilities of me getting uh, the software that I need. So, uh, yeah, thanks to thanks to the Jims and thanks to Josh all of the names that start with J, helping me get the software that I'm looking for. So they're the ones that kind of alerted me to the fact that I should probably upgrade my machine and go to version three, but I'm not ready to do that. That's that's a habit I'm not ready to break yet. So, so that's it. I'll let you know how uh, my switch to Republic Wireless goes. And uh, of course, making the switch over from uh, my other website to uh, Bluehost, which is a no-brainer because we have good luck with uh, Bluehost with Working Class Audio. And I'll let you know how the switch to uh, Studio One goes. I, I look forward to it. I've played around with it quite a bit with the demos and the, the, the free version. And I don't know. I think I'm just ready to switch. I've been on Pro Tools for 18 years, and it's time to time to try something different. So uh, that said, uh, let's, let's get on over to our interview with Kim Rosen. 
and uh, hope you enjoy this. Kim Rosen here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome, welcome to the podcast, and thanks for taking the time to to do this. I think this will be fun, and you know, I'm trying to get more mastering engineers on. I had my buddy John Greenham on, and uh, I don't know if you listen to the show and get the gist of it, but I have been. Yes. Okay, you listen to the show, so you know what we talk about. Yes, I do. I like it. Awesome. I'm glad you do. So. I read your uh, read your tape op interview. What I got out of that was you're from Northampton, yes, Massachusetts, but you live in uh, Ringwood, New Jersey now. Yeah, it's it's about forty five minutes from New York City, so we're close enough to get in there if we need to, but we're far enough away that I live around a lot of trees and on a lake. I get to kind of look outside my window here and have a little bit of peace outside the mayhem of the studio. So. We're not that far from the city, but it, we kind of feel a, a world away. The guy that you interned for originally, uh, Alan, is it, du- do you pronounce it Duchess? Douches, like couches. Yeah. Alan Douches. Okay. It was really interesting to read how he was writing down every single detail of what to do in Pro Tools for you and how you, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seemed like what I got out of the article was, is you kind of like got into some sessions and realized that with like some tracking sessions and realized maybe mastering is more my thing. You know, when he hired me, he wanted an intern for his mastering studio, but he also happened to have an engineer, a young engineer that he had worked with for years who was doing tracking in his mastering studio at night. So even though he hired me to be an intern and to train to help him with, you know, production duties for mastering, he also wanted me to be exposed to all kinds of engineering because I had no experience. So I didn't really know what I was interested in. And yet it, it could have been possible that, you know, mastering wasn't for me. Maybe I was more interested in doing tracking. And the only way to figure that out is to do it. So that's kind of why I fell into helping out and assisting on some recording sessions. But the production side of master mastering um, and the training that he gave me for that, yeah, it was pretty... It was pretty interesting. I mean, he's writing down how to use key commands when, you know, I don't even know where to go and find it in the Pro Tools menu with the mouse. You know, that's how disconnected it was. But, you know, after a while, of course, you get that. But in the beginning, yeah, it was I just did what he told me to do until I worked a lot and I had a better idea of why I was doing what I was doing. So did you, like I said, in as I what I got out of that article is that, I mean, Did you just decide that you you were like, I don't want to be a tracking engineer? Yeah, it was this first session and I was just working overnight, late night with this also young band with this young engineer and they were pretty unruly. I mean, I know better and I have far more knowledge of how sessions work these days. But at the time, being involved in it and trying to help set up mics and getting sounds before we record and watching the dynamic of the band and getting them focused I was right off the bat, just like, I don't want to deal with this. Like if I want to deal with audio and I want to do something in audio, like I want to work with audio. I don't want to be distracted by people. <laughs> it's, it can be off-putting. I, I will say I've done some sessions that I'm like, why am I here? You know, again, it was a young band. So it was obviously not the best example that I could be exposed to. But of course I knew if if I really was interested in, in tracking and recording, that that's where you start. You start off with bands that are, that are at your level and they might not be the best, most professional, most polished 
group of guys or girls and you just have to work with what you're given. But I knew pretty quickly that that just wasn't going to fit with my personality. You know, someone who wants to record, you have the drive and the dedication to do it no matter what. You know, you'll overcome, you know, the energy and the drama of the band because you love it so much. But for me, right away, I was able to say, yeah, not so much. You know, let me focus on mastering. Let me let me really get into what is going on here and see if that's a better fit for me. As a mastering engineer, do you ever like sit down and, and get some audio from somebody that you hope that it's going to be really, the mixes are going to be really good, but you just get garbage. And do you ever stop and say to the, to the mix engineer, have you considered remixing this? Mm, no, not specifically okay. those words. I will take a much different approach to asking uh, instead of, and I've found that this is just the way for me, it works really well over the years and experience, you know, talking with clients, I'll, I'll ask. And as a matter of fact, I think I may have just asked someone recently, tell me how you feel about your mixes. This is what I'll ask a client. Tell me how, what you think about your mixes. Tell me what you're hoping to get from mastering. Tell me if there's something that you were unable to do in mixing that you were hoping that I could help you with in mastering. But I try not to say, this is garbage, you should remix. I try to really be accepting of what they're giving me. Maybe it is the best they can do. Maybe they don't have a good engineer that's working with them. Maybe they're doing this themselves. And maybe they really think that what they've done is pretty good. And so I don't want to, I don't know, shame them because they don't have you know, a lot of talent, but they still want to go through this process. So I'll just try to be provocative and ask them questions about how they feel about it so that then I can pose a question. Well, this is what I'm hearing in the mixes. This is what I'm dealing with in mastering. Let me give you a couple of, couple of initial masters. You can listen to them and see how you feel the mastering has worked if it's improved what you've wanted to. Um, I try to make it more of a process as opposed to a, yeah, you really, you really should remix this. You really should change this because they wouldn't be coming to me if, you know, they had a better option. If they're ready to master and they're done with their mixing, you know, I kind of try to accept that this is what it is. I will ask if they're working with a mix engineer, whether or not I know them, I certainly will ask if mix, you know, slight mix changes can be made, but I cannot recall any occasion where I would say, guys, this really isn't up to par. I think you need to remix this whole thing before you bring it in for mastering. You'd you'd make a good doctor for somebody who's walking into the doctor's office in a in an unhealthy state. How do you feel about your weight or your diet? Right. Is that working for you? <laughs> so let's say you get some mixes in and and they have their flaws and you you tighten the whole thing up and you make it sound commercially competitive. Mm -hmm. And you hand it back to the person, let's say it's um, a band who does their own recording. And then they proceed to listen to your mastering job on the very same system that they used to mix on and start to give you pointers. Hey, yeah, it sounds great, but can you basically, you know, taking the reverse of whatever the EQ curve of the whole track and trying to bring it back to the knucklehead state it was in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is that a, does that happen? It does happen. You know, uh, another similar to that, I'll get EQ notes from clients, you know, I'll give them a master and they'll come back and they'll be like, you know, I, 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 I really like the mastering. It sounds great, but you know, I popped on an EQ 
and I made some adjustments and, and here are the notes. And do you think you can make that change for me? And those are the moments where I th am thinking in my head, okay, well, I can do this for them or I can use it as an opportunity to have a conversation with them about, okay, well, this is you doing this EQ makes it sound better to you. What was bothering you about the mastering I gave you? Sometimes I can achieve a sound a client wants without doing what they're telling me to do. And I don't know if that makes sense. Sometimes a client will tell me, I don't want, you know, you to add top end or I don't want you to take away the low end. And there might be too much low end in the mix. And I'll use some other way to not EQ it out, but just control it more. Clients who send you specific notes like that, I try to be accommodating because this is a customer service oriented business after all. Um, mm -hmm. But I try to do it in a way where we're still collaborating or maybe someone will just say, I just want it brighter. So instead of using their specific EQ notes, I, I then will go and do what I think to make it brighter. And so I might not necessarily use their notes but I'll do what I think to make it sound the way they want. It does not happen often, but it, <laughs> it, when it happens, it's kind of a, that voice in your head. Well, then why don't you master the record? But you just kind of need to stop and figure out, okay, well, how can we communicate and still let me do my job, but you know, really give the artist what they want. Do you ever uh, give an artist what they want and not feel confident that, what you gave them is the right thing. And do you feel like awkward? Like, I don't know if I want my name on that one. Um, maybe the, uh, maybe not so much. Uh, I don't want my name on that, but definitely. And most specifically with clients who really want a loud album, there are many, many times, and I'm sure many, many mastering engineers will agree with this and will have experienced the same thing. Um, you'll make something loud. You'll send it to the client. They'll listen to it. They'll say, great. Sounds great. Can you make it louder? Well, of course I can make it louder, but the question is, will it sound good? Don't care. Make it louder. So I find myself still saying, okay, well, customer service and I will do it and I will send it out. And man, that previous version was just so much better in so many ways, but the client is ready to move forward with this loudest, louder, crazy version. And so, you know, that happens not so much lately, but over the years, that has really been the hardest thing to let go and let the client direct how loud, how insanely loud they want their project to be. Um, but never, ever something that I wouldn't want my name on. I'm proud of everything that I've worked on and proud of being able to work with a client to give them what they want. What drives you nuts about mix engineers and what they give you? Uh, there's really only two things that routinely jump out to me. Too much low end, so too much kick drum, too much bass guitar, uh, or too much top end, too much cymbals, too much EQ on the mix bus or, or anywhere on the mix. You know, I try not to ask too many questions about where it is. And, and more than anything, it's the low end more than the top end. Because when I start going in and having to use EQ, to kind of sculpt out and tame the low end, there's all these frequencies that may have been recorded on the vocal that even down at a frequency where I'm only dealing with, you know, the low end, there's still frequencies down there that give weight and depth and warmness 
to vocals to guitars that even so slight, if I'm EQing out for bass guitar and kick drum, I'm going to end up with a loss up there and the top end starts sounding thinner. You know, I'm speaking in small amounts, but for me in my ears and when I'm working and when I start to hear things being taken away from, you know, the mid range and the top end, it just kind of bums me out because then it's just, mm -hmm. it's a lot more work to get everything back once I'm working on taming the low end. And I'm talking about like three, four dB of cut and EQ. I'm not talking about minimal stuff. Minimal stuff with sculpting low end is pretty routine in mastering. But when I have to make larger adjustments is when I start to really lose things in the mix that I wish I didn't have to. And that's an occasion where I would ask the client, you know, if I get that, you know, can you make a mix change? Can you give me a mix that has a little bit less kick, a little bit less bass guitar? And most of the time, uh, mix engineers are just like, you know, sure. And then there's the 25% of the times they're just like, no, we paid the mix engineer. We don't have any money to get any revisions made. Can you just use it the way it is? And, mm. you know. As far as the range of your business that comes to you, sometimes you have bands coming at you to to ask you to master. And sometimes you have uh, mix engineers, I would assume, kind of acting as the liaison. Can you give me like a range of, of what percentage of, of that is the case? Like, is it 60-40 in favor of engineers or bands or... I would say 60-40 engineer to band. Ah. There are also times where bands will contact me because they're working with an engineer that I've worked with before and they recommended me. So I might not be dealing with the engineer, but it's someone I've worked with multiple times and they referred the band to me. So the engineer is not the liaison, but they are the, you know, the catalyst to put me in touch with this client, this band. But most of the time when I'm working with engineers that I work with on a regular basis, those aren't really occasions where I'm having issues with the mix. When I'm having a, you know, that 40% of a band that heard from another band or that checked out my website and saw my credits and, you know, dropped me a line because they want to work with me, those might be more of the occasions where I have issues with the mix and there's more of a back and forth and a conversation about getting things right, making things sound good. If I'm work working with an engineer that I've worked with a lot, then a lot of the issues that I have, they're just not there. We've worked together so much that, you know, it's kind of, the process has been streamlined. They know what to give to me. I know what I'm going to be getting. Um, and it's a lot easier and more enjoyable to work. Interesting. As, as we're having this conversation, I'm thinking, it seems like um, there's a lot of, you know, isolation and segmentation um, for all of us. So, you know, like a band will uh, operate in a way where they they seek out, and I'm, I'm thinking of some worst case scenarios, really, um, where they'll seek out the cheapest mix engineer they can find, and then they'll get what they need from them, and then they'll go shopping for a mastering engineer. I almost see a need for like a, a tag team approach where somebody would approach me, I could say, yeah, I can mix your record and have it mastered with, you know, team up with a mastering engineer like yourself where I can quote one price and say, yeah, we can get everything done for this. And, you know, uh, I'll handle this part of it. You know, Kim will handle this part of it and uh, give you your master. Do you ever do that? I do have um, a setup with a studio in Nashville. Welcome to 1979. Mm. 
Yes. Uh, Chris they, Mars plays. Yep. They approached me a couple years ago, um, and they really wanted. They had been working with an engineer. They kind of wanted to grow that business, the mastering side of it, and so we came to an agreement where if they where they advertise mastering on their website, and people who go to the 1979 website, they can book mastering and it gets sent over to me. Clients that are in there recording and mixing, um, you know, they try to encourage people to master with Kim. So, <clears throat> and then the client will deal with them for billing on their end and it becomes a more simplified, you know, straightforward approach for people to go through that way. And it's really great for me because I really enjoy them. They're great people and all the stuff they send my way is fantastic. Um, you know, and as a business owner, I'm always looking for ways to expand my business and get more clients. So mm -hmm. it was really great. We continued to work together that way. As a matter of fact, I just mastered something yesterday. Um, a single at 192, um, uh, and sent that back to them. And so they take care of everything for me, you know, the billing and everything. And we just take care of the accounting side separately. It's, it, it's really painless and wonderful and it's great to work with them, but that's really the only occasion where it's a streamlined financially. Most other occasions where I work with an engineer who likes to try to get the client to master with me, um, it's still billed separately. They will do their billing through me. I take care of mm -hmm. that separately. They will have paid their mix engineer and then I'll bill them myself. Welcome to 1979 does, uh, cuts vinyl. So I assume that, and I, and I looked at your website, so you handle vinyl and you send in uh, vinyl masters for them to cut from mm -hmm. just because I'm, you know, I'm kind of jumping around here, but since I brought it up, what is it about the differences between mastering for vinyl versus mastering for a digital release, mm -hmm. whether that's CD or, or a download, what is it that most young uh, up and coming engineers don't realize? And that they should know. Well, it's certainly something that I didn't know until I really started working more closely with Cameron, who does all the lacquer cutting at 1979. You know, when I was working at the studio I used to work at, um, when I was training, we I was taught to use CD masters, same files, if you were sending for vinyl. Um, and so that's what I did. And it wasn't until I really started talking with Cameron about it and when we started working together... The first thing I did, they just had me remaster something that that was already done on their side, but I mastered it and then they had Cameron cut a reference lacquer and I listened to it and I was like, wow, really kind of for the first time I was able to hear where I could have made improvements to how I mastered and the master that I gave them to really make the vinyl shine. So the changes that I now make because of that is I certainly, you know, roll off a little bit of low end um, for vinyl masters, <clears throat> depending on the music. Um, routinely, I would say from about 80 hertz, I might put a shelf filter on and take down a half a dB, um, which might not seem like a lot, but if it's you know pretty straightforward, not too loud, crazy stuff, that's kind of enough. Cameron will take care of putting all the low-end information into mono, so I don't need like an elliptical filter craziness on that. And then I'll head to the top end a lot of times are really kind of standard, you know, maybe not top on so much. Maybe I just end up making a master that's not as loud. So maybe a half dB to a dB of less volume will also help um, kind of bring down the top end. These are like standard 
changes that I will make. Of course, if I have a CD master, which I did have recently, which was very, very loud, insanely loud, insane amounts of low end, I had to make pretty big changes for the vinyl master to make it more appropriate um, to cut. And actually it was something that went to Cameron and he he called me, he was just like, hey, uh, this is crazy. Like, is, is there any way for you to make more changes? So I actually had to change it, make a couple of revisions to it because it was kind of out of control. Oh, wow. But standard changes would be a little less volume, a half to one dB, you know, bring down the low end. Most of the stuff that I master tends not to be too bright, so I don't really tame the top end too much. I mean, you could have a really long conversation about all the ways that you can tweak and change vinyl depending on how long the side of the record is, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, what changing the sequence to put a softer song at the end of a side. What about those like engineers who are mixing stuff and potentially sending stuff to you or other mastering engineers with vinyl in mind? Mm-hmm. What are the things in the mix that we all need to be aware of? Some of us know these answers and, and I'm only asking really just to educate those who don't know because vinyl obviously is mm-hmm. is gaining uh, market share very little, but it's still gaining yeah. regardless. So what do we mix engineers need to be aware of in our in our mixes for vinyl? If a mix engineer was making something that was strictly going to vinyl, they really need to be careful of low-end information that is um, off to the sides. Uh, low-end information really needs to be kind of in the, more in the center. I know that Cameron tries to put it to mono. It's too much side information low-end, from what I understand. It's just won't, it won't play back. It's just not good. I'm sure there's a more specific explanation that Cameron can make, but um, that is one big thing. And then a lot of top end, again, it won't really play back well, uh, like very bright top end won't play back very well, will sound maybe distorted. But other than that, I really don't think that as a mix engineer, there's too much that you need to be careful with. What you get into trouble with is kind of more in mastering. It just, it can't be too loud. You know, that's one physical limitation of vinyl that you can't get around, you know, the amount of space on a record is the amount of space on a record. So let's talk about you built your mastering room off the side of your house after having been mastering inside your house, from what I gather. Yes. Can you elaborate a little bit on cost, what you put into this, this part? Yeah, that's hard because what we did is it wasn't just an addition for the studio. It was actually, you know, we bought this house. It was a tiny 800 square foot log cabin. And we bought the house knowing that we wanted to build on for our, for living space. Uh, mm-hmm. We never intended to add a mastering room. But when I left the studio I was working at, I had just had my first child. He was a few months old. And so we, I started working right away. <clears throat> but when we started to move forward with the plans for the addition, we're like, well, we need to make a mastering room now. I can't continue to work in the living room. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the cost of the addition, this room was probably minimal in the scope of, of what we spent on the addition because we kind of gave ourselves a whole new house <laughs> and a lot of stress. And it's still it's still a modest-sized house. I mean, my, my room here is only 14 by 25, the mastering uh-huh. room. You know, and the rest of the house. So I suppose we doubled the size of our original house. Everything else is still pretty modest. We renovated the kitchen, renovated the bathroom, added a bedroom, and, you know, just living space. 
but the mastering room itself was kind of like a no-brainer add-on to it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have to say, uh, you are the first mom we've had on. We have a lot of dads, uh, and obviously I'm a father. But uh, so you you work from home. Yeah. Uh, if I may ask, how old are your kids? My kids are three and six. My six-year-old is in first grade, and my three-year-old she goes to daycare. Okay. Uh, so I get my time to work all day, you know, and if I really think back to the beginning when I had an infant, um, and, and how much I worked prior to having kids, I mean, anybody who's an engineer knows how much you, how much time you put into being available whenever and how that directly relates to success and, you know, kind of moving forward with your career. So I don't really feel that there would have been any other way for me to continue to work as much as I've worked as a mastering engineer if I didn't do it at home. Working this way really enables me to be available whenever, you know, to take opportunities for for clients and projects that come here, you know, and want to work with me. And I can work overnight if I need to, and I want to work. Being able to have my studio at home. It just makes it so much easier to do that. Yeah, it really does. I, I, I work from home and it allows me to be the, the one in the family to go and drop off the kids, mm-hmm. pick up the kids mm-hmm. and, uh, really kind of, uh, take that load, uh, off my wife's shoulders so that she can do her job, mm-hmm. which is a more corporate job. Right. So yeah, it's, it's great too. I mean, obviously we're, we're both benefiting from living in the 21st century and, and being able to shift files back and forth across the world without a lot of hassle. Yeah. It's an amazing thing. And it allows us, I think, and I don't know if I'm sure you would agree. It allows us to be the parents that we want to be. Yes. Which is really, really nice. Totally. I enjoy, you know, having my kids around where I work, you know, I have a dog too. It's all just kind of here. They see what I do. They still don't really understand it. I'm pretty sure that they think that every every artist I play in the car that I I master them, which is just not true. Especially when they ask me to play <sighs> Katy Perry or something like that. I'm, pre- I'm, I'm I'm fairly certain they think that I master everything that they hear, um, but I try to explain otherwise. But I'm- my kids always ask me, Dad, did you play drums on this or did you mix this? Yeah, it's great. no. And the part that you were talking about, it's great to be able to do the family, the parent stuff when it needs to be done. I'll be honest, there are lots of times when, you know, I'm making a, trying to make a deadline or I'm really kind of in it on a project and trying to get stuff done or problem solve. And, you know, my husband works and I have to stop what I'm doing and go get my kids. At a time when if probably not the best time to be doing this and I really should be staying here and doing what needs to get done. But if I don't go pick up my child... (laughs) then they're going to get left there by themselves. So it sometimes it becomes this this really crazy back and forth balance, you know, and my husband is is amazing with whenever he can kind of picking up the slack and helping out, but we're both really busy with our careers. So we're we're kind of at a tipping point where it would be great if I could get a little bit of help um, you know, take a little bit of pressure off of me because even though I have a demanding job and he has a demanding job. Uh, a lot of times I'm the one to like, you know, do all the kid stuff because I'm mom and, and that's what kids want sometimes. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've encountered this where <clears throat> I have a, um, 
I have two boys, seven and nine, and the seven-year-old loves to play the game Connect Four. Mm-hmm. And he, I have to just tell you, he's a badass. I have lost to him so many times; it's it's ridiculous. And I'll be in the middle of mixing, and I think, okay, they're either a they're doing their homework, they're playing with one another, or uh, you know, playing a game, or they're uh, they're 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 occupied. And then the door opens, and I'm in the middle of you know in the headspace, and I get the Dad, will you play Connect Four with me? My brother won't play with me right now, and I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I'm gonna. St- I'm and I just I've given up. I'm like, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna go play Connect Four right now. Totally. I mean, I can I can't even keep track of the number of times. As great as it is, you know, kids go to school. Sometimes kids are homesick, and I find myself working at home when the kids are sick. And the big joke between my husband and I is that our Kids, when they're home, they are like garbage disposals. They continuously eat. So I'll be sitting here working. I will have come in after breakfast and sat down with my coffee and I'm working, you know, 20 minutes, only 20 minutes, set the kid up with TV, which is another thing that my children do a lot of watching TV while I work. 20 minutes, I'll be working and one of the children will come in. Can I have something to eat? We just finished breakfast 20 minutes ago. No, go watch your movie and they'll go and They'll be back 20 minutes later. Can I have something to eat? Oh, my God. Uh, and so it becomes this big joke, like, you know, that, that's all they want. And I'm trying to manage, you know, working and listening and constantly being interrupted. And sometimes you just got to get up and feed your kid. Sometimes you just got to stop mastering a record. That's right. Uh, yeah. And so, you know, it's uh, it gets a little crazy around here. You know, someone's delivering something. The dog is barking. You know, my phone is ringing. I got to talk to a client and... The kids are here and it gets a little hectic sometimes, but we try to embrace it and just, you know, not we try not to hide um, what we are because, you know, everybody's working. It's not a matter of trying to be rude or trying not to be rude or trying to be something that we're not. You know, we're a couple with a family running a business and that's also a whole nother avenue on why I love my clients and why I love doing this because the people that I work with, they're just really cool. Everybody understands and feels good about talking with me or, you know, everybody just gets along and we're all living our life and being real people. And Mm -hmm. just this, you know, corporate machine. It's really nice to interact with people who think about audio the same way, think about music, love music the same way that we do, because that's why we do this. We love music. I mean, that's how I met my husband. He was thrilled when I, when we started my own mastering room. He used to play in bands, but he has become my business partner in running this mastering studio. I mean, he doesn't he does he does things like he works on my website and he helps me research gear and pick out the right kind of gear for for me and for my mastering chain. But the way the partnership has turned out is pretty awesome, and you know being music lovers and and it being such a big part of our life to be able to run a business and have me work and do what I do it just enriches everything and it's really great that's fantastic yeah that's that's a level of involvement from from a partner that yeah. um, I don't think a lot of people have and and that's that's a great position to be in I mean I, I love my wife I think she's fantastic but she's not involved in my business in that level she's got enough on her plate. So we run pretty independently, but, uh, so as a result of working at home and working 
where your home is located. I, not only did I read in your interview with, with Larry and Tapot, but I, I get that you don't have a lot of attended sessions. No, no. I mean, I've had a couple people in here um, and I certainly don't discourage it, but just the way everything is set up these days, maybe if I were a, a big facility in kind of a metropolitan hub, New York City, somewhere else, more accessible, it would be easier. But I work on clients that are all over the country. It's not really a local thing. So it's harder to get people in, you know, certainly you got to pay to get yourselves there. Attended mastering sessions are also, you know, they're kind of like a different thing. I, I mean, I love them. I haven't had an opportunity to do one in a long time. You know, the way you interact with the client, the artist in real time while you're working on a project is really fun, man. You know, mastering for me is about vibe and there's, there's no better vibe than when you're sitting there with the artist trying to bring everything to a finish. I kind of miss that, but again, you know, it just really touches on my ability to work whenever. So unattended sessions, I can shuffle my schedule around and make it work based on what's going on here. Any given time, I might have five to eight projects in various stages of work. And I can do that because they're unattended. Some I'm just starting, some I'm waiting for approval, some I need to get, get finishing. And unattended work allows me to really put things in the order that I need them to, to get them done as efficiently and as quickly as possible for the client. I feel I can do my best work mixing when I don't have anybody in front of me because I'm not trying to put on a dog and pony show and I can just go down rabbit holes and experiment and test without freaking anybody out. Do you think that that applies to mastering at all? There is definitely something to be said for that. I mean, you are right. There are maybe there are moves and opportunities that I might not take if I were working on an attended session. Whether or not I would take those risks if I was in an attended session, I suppose depends on the client. If I know them, maybe a bit nervous working with them, you know. So I suppose that that could be kind of a drawback to an attended session. I mean, you're you're at the the the, the back end of the process and seems that usually at mastering, everybody's always freaked out and rushing and they just got the mixes the day before and they've set unrealistic deadlines sometimes, whether it's with record company or not. And I don't know, man, you know, I just, when I mix, I'll hit a point where I, I, I just, I have to take a break and I'm like, well, I'm at home, it's mm -hmm. lunchtime mm -hmm. and let's do on demand with uh, Stephen Colbert and go watch that and uh, eat, you know, eat some chips and salsa and have about four more cups of coffee and then get back on the horse. You know, if a client's here, that's just not going to fly. Nope. That's going to, that's going to make everybody feel like, what do you mean you need to watch Stephen Colbert? No, no. I mean, that, that is definitely, yeah, man. I mean, I don't know. I guess it could depend on your mood that day. Uh, I guess it depends on the music. I guess it depends on a lot of things, you know, whether or not uh, an attended session would hold you back. I suppose there's plenty of occasions where it might, and you might just be having one of those days where you want to just take a, a, a break and let your ears rest and you, you come back to it and you're just like, yeah, all right, now I'm, I get it now I'm back on track, you know, but then there, I think there's also, I, I really, I think there's opportunities that you get with attended sessions. That, that there are drawbacks to each and there are pluses to each. And so, you know, if you really feel you do your best work unattended, then then that's the way you should try to make it happen. But I feel like, you know, I like I like being pushed out of my comfort zone. And so sometimes really magical things can happen when you're 
not sitting around doing things the same way you always do. And maybe something new and different comes of it. Yes, I like being efficient and doing what works, but I also like taking the occasional risk and mm -hmm. doing something, you know, a little bit different. If you're cool with it, I'd like to speak on uh, maybe the topic of retirement savings and, 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 and financial stuff. I don't know if that's a, uh, if that's an awkward question, is that uh, something you're on top of or? You know, it's really, f that's a great question. When I started working um, at the studio, I used to work at my old boss and his wife, her parents sold life insurance and they were all about planning. And I was 23 and I was like, if I'm going to be in this industry for a long time, I'm never going to have a 401k. I should start thinking about doing something for retirement now. And so what they got me into was a whole life insurance policy. And that's something that's going to grow and grow. And, and based on pretty modest monthly premium that I've been paying since I was 23. So that's 12 years. Um, by the time I'm ready to retire, it's this life insurance policy that I can borrow against and use it like a retirement fund. If by the time I'm ready to retire, it's worth, you know, $800,000. Um, I can, that's the value of the life insurance policy. I can borrow against it as I want or take money out of it. And it just reduces the benefit should I expire or die or whatever that my family gets. Um, mm -hmm. that is the only thing that I have set up. And so maybe it's given me this false hope that, or this false idea that I have something, <laughs> um, reliable planned. And I certainly should and would like to make some more moves to save some more. But at, aside from that, I have not done anything, but okay. I'm still, you know, proud that I at least did that. Cause I know that when most people are 23, the last thing they're worried about is retirement. Oh yeah. It's interesting though. I think that, uh, in our, in our industry, you could get away with working longer and that, um, longevity, uh, almost is, I mean, if you look at like Al Schmidt, Glenn Johns, Leslie Ann Jones, the older you get, people look at you and go, oh, they're the great, you know, wizards in our world. They're the Yodas. Oh, yeah. And uh, people tend to have respect. Where I think in the tech world, you know, you get to around 50, 55, people start to go, hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with the movie Logan's Run, but- no. Uh, it's it, it was a movie where you had a little look like a marble embedded in your hand mm -hmm. and it had a light. And when that light went out, it, it it went out at age 30. And at 30, if the light went out, then they killed you in the movie. And the whole movie is based on the idea that Logan and his crew are running from because their lights are going out. They're turning 30 or something. And right. it's ridiculous. It's 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 a hilarious movie. <laughs> Um, but it's an, it's, it's an older sci-fi movie. And, and I just think, man, you know what? I'm going to do audio as long as somebody will write me a check and, and I can hear. Mm -hmm. Well, I guess that's the most important factor as long as you can hear. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would feel the same way. I just can't, first of all, I can't believe that I'm doing this. I mean, this isn't like something that I, becoming a mastering engineer was something that was a dream of mine since I was young. And yet I can't imagine doing anything else. I can't imagine having any other career or ha I have no desire to have any other career. And I am, you know, excited by the idea of working more and more 
for many years. And like you said, like I'll work as long. I mean, you make your own schedule when you're in engineering, you only take on projects that you agree to. So even when you're not retired, you, you know, you can take off and go travel with your spouse or your friends and still, yeah. what's not to like about that? Partially retire, um, you know, but certainly planning financially so that you have the abilities to do that is just as important as having the, the desire not to fully retire, uh, you know, at 65 or 70 or whenever people tend to want to retire. You seem to really enjoy it. You seem to have a passion for it. Obviously, your your body of work looks looks pretty pretty large, so it doesn't look like you're a fly by night operation by any stretch. You seem to make made some really good alliances with you know the folks at 1979, and which by the way, how did, how did that come about? You're in with you in New Jersey and them in Nashville. Yeah, this will be a long answer, but it will make sense. I promise. Okay. When I started my own space. Um, you know, I was really kind of, sh- kind of shell shocked. It, it was really kind of all of a sudden. I really didn't have an intention of starting my own place, but I found myself in a position where that's what I was going to do. And when I started mastering in my living room, uh, very shortly after that, I was kind of feeling like, yeah, I'm here, I'm doing this, but I don't have a, I don't have my like my own audio family, my own friends, my own little network, and I'm doing this on my own. I kind of felt, you know, like. I need to get something else here. And right at that time, my husband, who does graphic design, he was put in touch with um, a guy. His name is Gil Griffith. He um, runs Wave Distribution. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I I met Gil. And he lives one town over from us. So we made friends with Gil and started hanging out and spending time and meeting up. And Gil has this great network around him. We've become friends with Dave Durr of Empirical Labs and Kooster McAllister, who works at Record Plant Remote. And so I kind of built up this little family of people involved in audio and I started to feel great. Now I'm not so alone. And it was really Gil and his contacts that as I started traveling out to places like Potluck Audio Conference, that he would introduce us to his friends. And one of them was Chris Mara. And so we met him and his wife, Yoli, who are fantastic. You know, they also, a couple, you know, running a business, they have young kids. You know, it was something we had in common. And we just hit it off. I went out. Chris has an audio summit every November. And I'll be there this November. This will be the third year that I'm there. I'll be on a panel. I started going out there. And and from that first year that I went, that's when Chris came up with the idea um, of a partnership and, and doing the mastering. And really just the getting out part and meeting people and putting myself out there, which was kind of hard initially because starting my own room and starting off mastering on my own, I really felt kind of like, you know, do I belong here? Do I have enough credits? You know, am I credible enough to be out here saying I'm a mastering engineer? I was kind of insecure at first, but once I started getting out and meeting people and continuing to work and work and work, you know, that kind of faded away. And now it's like, you know, you meet people who are like-minded, who, as I mentioned before, who love music the way that I do, who think about music the way that I do. And it, you know, it's really cool. You know, a lot of the friendships and the, the partnerships that I made by going out and meeting people in audio conventions, you know, been so lucrative, lucrative as friendships and lucrative as, you know, working together from a business business standpoint. 
That's very cool. Um, I have to say, I, I think that a lot of people feel insecure if they don't have major label credits. Mm -hmm. And and I and I'm just here to say that's bullshit. Yeah. You know, you know, I, I, I feel that, you know, you don't have to have major label credits to be a legitimate, you yeah. know, commodity. Now, maybe that looks better for the gear manufacturers in the endorsement deals. I, th I think that you could still be a working class person who does a great job, who doesn't work necessarily on, you know, the latest pop star that comes out of wherever or country star. Right. I mean, and that's, I can't remember when I spoke of this, you know, the best way to learn how to master is just to master. And I understand that it's hard to find clients and to get people to trust you to master, but the more you work, the better you get. And um, it wasn't so much not having major level, major label credits for me. It was just, I, I, I don't, I, I don't even think I could explain it. You know, I look back now and I see, you know, I've worked on a lot of projects. I mean, and the best way for me to feel credible now is to go back and listen to them. And nearly every single project that I could go back and listen to that I've worked on, I mean, I, I'm proud of every single one of them. Even the ones that maybe might not sound that great early mm -hmm. on in my career, you know, I'm still really proud of it. I feel so lucky. All the music that I work on, I find a way, man, I connect to it and I love it and it it really becomes something that I'm proud of. So, so I look back now and, you know, all the work that I've done feel like that's, I mean, what is credibility anyway? I mean, you know, I, <laughs> I could sit down and, and say that I don't feel credible because I don't like talking gear because that's not my thing. Because, you know, for me, it's, it's how I hear it's the music, it's the vibe, it's the work that I do. I mean, you the best way for me to show a client what I do is to do a test master for them you know, let you hear, you know, I can't, me explaining what I do or why I might be better than a different engineer is going to do nothing. Like, let me just show you. Mm -hmm. That's really, for me, that's the way that I explain or speak. You're perfectly suited for this podcast then. Cause <laughs> so this has been great. I, I appreciate your, your time to sit and chat with me. And, uh, I think this is good information that you've, you've shed here. And I, and also, you know, it's nice to have another parent on, kids and audio. Yeah, they, you know, sometimes they get really sick because I do drive around with them a lot. I'm driving them to daycare or here or there. I listen to my work in the car nearly all the time. They get pretty sick of me playing the same stuff over and over again sometimes. And they'll just have had it. And I'll just say, hey, sorry, got to be quiet. Time to be quiet. I got to listen. And they do. They're pretty. They're pretty agreeable kids. I I would say that I'm pretty lucky. I'm always fascinated as far as like the songs that my kids like. Like I'll play a song, listen to a mix, and I'm like, you know, in my brain, I'm like making all the changes in my head. And then I hear this, "Hey, Dad, can you play that again?" Yes. Like, oh, you like that? Uh -huh. Well, that's good. That's good. I'll let them know that. Yeah, they'll come running, running down the hallway. They'll bust open the door. They'll start dancing around in the room. I'll be like, oh, I guess you like this song. <laughs> this has been great meeting you and chatting with you. Yes, thank you. Getting your take on things. Thanks, Kim. Thanks so much, Matt. Okay, Bye. later. Super cool. Big thank you to Kim Rosen for coming on the show and taking the time to, to chat with us about her world of mastering. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. We are out of time, so we will uh, have a new show for you next week. Until then, would like you to know that our music is provided by Mr. Cliff Truesdell, and our voiceover intro is Chuck Smith. 
and our uh, social media and additional audio support is provided by Cole Williams. And a special thanks to our friends over at gearsluts.com for their support. And thank you for listening. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>